From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Joe Hawthorne, and you're listening to Eclipsed. Okay, a half a mile, we're gonna make it right onto Crafts Street. Okay. Like, arts and crafts. Last spring, Bijan and I drove out to meet diver DJ Gillis at his mother's house in the suburbs of Boston. Hi. Come on in, guys. The neighborhood is quiet and working class. And in the middle is his mom's place. It's a green-sided townhouse. Inside, there's handmade wood furniture and carefully prepared tea sets. As you walk up the stairs, there's a collection of family photographs that cover the wall. And right in the middle of frame sketches and landscape paintings is a big HGTV blasting a PBS special. But when we arrived, DJ wasn't there. He was still tied up at work. So instead, we got to meet his mom. Lorraine Gillis is a caring Canadian grandma mixed with a no-nonsense Boston nurse. She offered us coffee and apple pie and then told me to give DJ a, quote, swift kick in the ass for being late. So Lorraine knew what we were here to talk about. So what are you guys going to do? Have a chat with DJ Mm -hmm. about the uh, accident? Is that what it's about? It's a long story, my dear. We ended up waiting about an hour. And just as we were packing up to get some food, in stomps DJ. Hey, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? He's still got his dirty gear on, so he puts a white towel on top of his sofa seat. He sits down in it, cracks open a small tub of fancy yogurt, and immediately launches into conversation. We're a bunch of commercial divers here. You know, we're used to bending over and showing our ass cracks to each other as we're getting into the... Yogurt? You're not eating yogurt in front of them and didn't offer those. We're fine, thank you. I'm okay. But they they are recording stuff, but thank you, Mom, very much. We spend the day together. When we talk about his life, DJ is full of colorful anecdotes about his past. But when we talk about Deer Island, a lot of the conversation feels heavier and ominous, like every detail is pointing to an unavoidable accident. Maybe that's just what happens when you talk about going nine and a half miles into an airless tunnel. And automatically it started sounding a little confusing to me. I go, 450 feet below the ocean floor. I says, what are you talking about, man? Are you talking like down and inside of some kind of a pre-existing tunnel? Basically, everything about this mission was unprecedented, including the most fundamental piece of equipment keeping DJ and the other divers alive, the breathing system supplying them with oxygen. The environment in the tunnel didn't have enough air to support human life, but the owner of the diving company, Tap Taylor, told DJ that they had a high-level expert working on it. They got this guy, this engineer from Canada. He worked for NASA before, so he came up with this plan of we're going to be using liquid nitrogen, liquid oxygen, and we're going to run it through a vaporizer. And I said, why are we mixing our own gas tap? Why aren't, why doesn't the company just call up and order gases mixed? Like any company I've worked for before, for whatever reason that didn't work, they had to stick with this other nitwits plan and use this liquid oxygen and nitrogen. The reason they couldn't just use tanks of pre-mixed gas was that a nine and a half mile underground trip would take way too long it wasn't feasible to lug around that many oxygen tanks, which to me seems like a red flag. Of course, these memories are all colored by the benefit of hindsight. At the time, Deer Island was just a job. An unusual job, yes. But like any job, it had its own momentum and people relying on each other, pushing each other towards a shared goal to complete the mission in the tunnel. 
And as more people risked their lives by signing up for this project, it became that much harder to back out. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And we're back. This is the second of our three-part series on the disaster at Deer Island. This is episode two, Mission Critical. It's been several weeks since Tap called DJ, and the divers are starting to assemble. Safety training begins in early June 1999. The first sessions are in a conference room, but prep work soon moves to the garage and the outdoors. DJ says he and Tap Taylor had the kind of relationship where they could be direct with each other, even yell. Uh, you and I, because me and Tap used to have it out, and I'd tell Tap, well, then, fuck you, I'm fucking leaving. You get somebody else that can go in there and do that, and I wouldn't make it to my truck. DJ, come on, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, we'd be buddies again. Knowing DJ's attitude, Tap warned his friend that he'd have to behave himself on the job. It was high stakes for Tap's commercial diving business. If he could get in with some of the big contractors involved in the Deer Island project, it could open up a whole new world of lucrative work for his company. In other words, there's a lot riding on this project for Tap Taylor and Black Dog Diving. And DJ says Tap was particularly worried about how DJ would act towards a key member of the project, the engineer who designed the breathing system. He says, if you go on this job, he says, you're not going to like this guy. And I says, why is that? And he says, he's very pompous. He's very arrogant. You know, he worked for NASA. He helped design a breathing system, emergency breathing system on one of the shuttles or something like that. And I says, I don't care if he develops a breathing system for God. You know, if I don't like him, I'm not going to like him. But I'll try to like him. Sure enough, DJ doesn't like the engineer. When Tap introduces the two and the engineer explains the breathing system he's designed, DJ asks follow-up questions. But DJ remembers the engineer being dismissive, like he couldn't be bothered to explain his complex system to a guy with a high school education. DJ has to walk away before he gets too angry. Tap was like, yeah, DJ, I need you to go over there and do this or do that. Um, I don't need you telling this guy to go fuck himself. DJ's feelings are understandable. The functioning of the breathing system is literally a matter of life and death. But for him, it's not just about technical details. DJ needs to know that everyone he's working with understands that they are relying on each other for survival. One of the things I learned uh, early on in the commercial diving business is the crew that you're with at that point in time, even if it's only for three weeks and we may never see each other again, but for this next three weeks, we have to treat each other like family, like literally like we're blood, because our lives depend on each other. So... Any animosities or disagreements or religious differences, racial differences, any differences whatsoever. It's all got to go aside. Right now, we are commercial divers that are trying to stay alive till this job's over, and that's all that matters. 
So DJ has his first chance to meet his new work family during training exercises in New Hampshire at Tap Taylor's facility. Tap's yard is full of complicated gear, including the breathing system that will keep the divers alive. There are also military-style Humvees, and even a replica of the tunnel itself. This way, the divers can get a sense of their cramped working environment. DJ's used to commercial divers being tough guys, sort of cowboy types. So he was surprised when a clean-cut diver named David Riggs didn't quite fit the mold. We're working on something, and I'm going on, and F this and mother F of that, and son of a bitch, and Riggs goes, excuse me, young man. He goes, um, I'd appreciate it if you could uh, refrain from using the uh, vulgar language. He says, uh, you know, I, I don't speak that and I don't like to be in the vicinity of it. You go, what are you, fucking kidding me? You know? So DJ is a little wary of rigs, but the newly assembled crew is still getting used to one another. For example, another diver assigned to the team was Haas, short for Donald Hosford. He was 24 and a kind of boy wonder on the crew. He was a big dude. Six foot five, to be exact. I spoke to Haas on the phone, who remembered how Party Boy DJ contrasted with clean-cut rigs. He, he was soft-spoken until it was time to something to be said. And then normally when he says something, everybody listened because he wasn't one just to talk to talk. DJ most of the time was a smart-ass. But Haas said he and DJ became close. They were both about the same age, both young and wild. Rounding out the team were Tim Nordean and Billy Juss. Tim's 6 feet, 200-plus pounds with a thick beard. He's a gun-loving conservative married to a liberal children's psychiatrist. Billy is a man with an impressively thick mustache, and he's also the close friend of Tap Taylor and a partner in black dog diving. He's the only one that DJ's met before training. So, to keep track, I'll oversimplify the team for a moment. There's DJ, the guy you've heard the most from. He's a skilled diver and a committed party boy. There's Haas, the 6'5 dude on the phone. There's Riggs, the clean-cut, clean-language family man. There's Tim, the bearded Texan. And lastly, there's Billy, the guy with the impressive mustache who's already friends with Tap and DJ. These are the five divers who will depend on each other for survival in the tunnel. And as they trained in the yard in New Hampshire the divers ran through all the critical details of that mission. The plan was to drive the length of the tunnel in a military-style Humvee, set up with a special oxygen injection system for the engine, so that it could operate in the airless environment. The lead Humvee would tow a trailer full of equipment, including the breathing system. And attached to the back of the trailer was another Humvee, facing the opposite direction. Since there wasn't room to turn around in the tunnel, they needed the second Humvee to drive out. Otherwise, they'd be driving in reverse the full nine and a half mile run to the exit. And perhaps most importantly, they trained on replicas of the 65 pound plugs they would have to remove. This was the entire point of the mission, to remove those 55 plugs. The plugs that had kept all the workers safe when they were building the tunnel. And now, they're the last thing stopping the $3 billion Deer Island facility from coming online. It just so happens these plugs live at the very end of the tunnel to nowhere. But as the divers trained in the yard, one crucial piece of equipment was missing. The breathing system wasn't yet operational. 
because the mixer that would turn the liquid oxygen and nitrogen into breathable air was still on order. So, for all the divers' training, they still didn't know how this newfangled system would actually work. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On Monday, July 12th, the five divers pulled onto Deer Island. There's a video of mission prep recorded for official records. The divers are inspecting the Humvees, running tests on their equipment, double-checking everything. While this is going on, Haas remembers the Santa Hogs who dug the tunnel being skeptical the divers could actually pull this off. They thought that was, you know, something they should have done versus divers, so there, there was a little rivalry there. The Santa Hogs joked that if the divers got stuck, they'd come to the rescue. Get stuck or you need help, we'll come get you. So, I mean, they were, <laughs> it was trash talking like that. It's hard to say whether the Sandhogs actually thought they could do the job or if they were relieved to pass responsibility. Everyone involved knew this was not going to be easy. In those official video records, you can see a giant crane carefully lowering that first Humvee hundreds of feet down into the tunnel. Once that was down, the crane lowered the trailer, the hoses, the radio, the extra oxygen tanks, and the second Humvee the one that would be facing out of the tunnel, towards the daylight and fresh air. Then, the crane lowered the divers themselves in a small cage. Inside the tunnel, it was dark and silent. A mist could be seen through the beams of the Humvee's headlights. It's an eerie environment. Still, DJ remembers lighter moments as the divers went about their work. On Tuesday, July 20th, he and Tim, the bearded Texan, were sitting in one of the Humvees. It's quiet, other than the radio and the buzz of equipment. DJ and Tim are monitoring the oxygen levels as the three other divers are working up ahead. Tim turns to DJ with a question. He says DJ looks like he knows his way around the court system. So I'm like, why the fuck does everybody think I know the courts? You know, I go, are you profiling me? <laughs> Tim confesses to DJ that some years ago he abandoned a car in New York. He goes, do you think there's a, think there's a warrant for my arrest out around here? And I go, well, I don't know. How long ago did you abandon the car? He was like, oh, it was like uh, 1987. Oh, about 12 years ago. 
I go, um, I don't think SWAT team's out looking for you, and I don't think the fucking federal marshals are looking for you. While Tim is asking for advice, DJ takes a big breath of air. He then quickly pulls down his oxygen mask and pops some peanut butter crackers into his mouth. But when he puts his mask back on, DJ accidentally hits the purge button, and a blast of air sends a dust storm of cracker crumbs into the back of his throat. I just started coughing and I couldn't stop. I mean, I was coughing my brains out. Tim hasn't seen what DJ's been doing. So when he suddenly has a coughing fit, Tim thinks DJ's having some sort of medical emergency. What's the matter? Oh my God, what do you do? What's the matter? And he started to get on the radio, I'm like, and I'm grabbing him, I'm like, you know, and I'm coughing, and then finally I was able to get it out. Leave the fucking radio alone, am I right? He's, and I finally I held up the crackers, you know? It's like, it's, and he looked, he's like, oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> He's like, you know, you're not supposed to eat down here. And I said, I was hungry. (laughs) Yeah, we got a good laugh out of that. But the mission wasn't going well. On the first day, the divers didn't manage to remove a single one of the 55 plugs. On the second day, they managed to remove just two. Haas remembers equipment failures kept getting in the way. Some were small things, a flat tire, an issue with the battery in the truck. But of course, this is an environment where small issues lead to big problems. There's no margin for error. That were red flags where we should have stopped knowing that. Not being groomed and not being experienced enough to know what those flags and indicators were. The most glaring of the red flags was that the breathing system kept failing. On Monday, the first day, Haas wasn't getting enough air into his mask. Then on Tuesday, too much air was rushing into masks. The key piece of equipment keeping the divers alive wasn't sending a reliable flow of air. The crew had to pull out early each time, with only a couple plugs to show for all their work. DJ was the union steward on the job, so it was his responsibility to shut it down if he felt like the team was in danger. And that's just what he told the engineer. So I said, look, man, we get one more of these evacuations. I go, well, I'm shutting this down. We're, we're, we're finished. That's it. Shutting it down, and we're getting a new plan. It feels well. In DJ's know. telling, the engineer is his usual arrogant self. He tells DJ that he doesn't have the authority to shut the job down. He says they'd have to bring a decision like that to the right people. The higher ups. I got pissed off. I go, hold up a second there. I go, you are talking to the right fucking people. I said, because right now I'm the union steward here. And my responsibility is every one of these fucking divers here that their health and their safety is in check. I'm the guy that's in charge of the lives of the men I work with. And I have the authority to stop this entire multi billion dollar project. Yes, little old me. That's right, with the, with the high school education, I can stop this whole thing because that's how we do it here in, in New England. DJ says the engineer assured him that they'd reassess the system and everything was good to go. But he couldn't shake the feeling that something terrible was going to happen. His mom remembers him coming home that night and walking into her bedroom. And he just leaned up against the wall and he just slid down to the floor and he said, you know, Mom... I don't know why I should have backed out of this. And I said, why? I don't know, Mom. It's just an eerie feeling about this. 
The next morning, DJ woke up and went to the job site as planned. When he arrived, Tap Taylor came up to him. Apparently, Tap had a bad feeling as well, because he asked DJ to look after their friend, Billy. He's like, I want you to watch out for Billy, because Billy gets pretty gung-ho about this stuff. He might not know what to do in emergency. He's never been this deep before. And I just kind of, just to ease his mind, I just kind of, I was just kind of laid back. I says, don't worry about it, Tap. Billy will be fine. I'll, I'll come back with me. I'll bring him back. Don't worry about it. You know, and then a little bravado, you know. I go, he's traveling with the best. He'll be all right. We'll get him out. No worries. After reassuring Tap, DJ puts on his gear and prepares to enter the tunnel with the rest of his team. That day in the tunnel, the team once again goes all the way to the end nine and a half miles out. They drive so far that they get to the point where the tunnel has tapered. It's a Venturi effect, like a nozzle on a garden hose or the tip of a can of whipped cream. The narrowing is crucial to create the right pressure to diffuse the wastewater. But it also means the tunnel is too small for the Humvee. So Billy and Tim are sitting in the truck, manning the radio and the breathing system. Meanwhile, Riggs and DJ are at the farthest point of the tunnel, working to remove the plugs. Haas is managing the work behind them. They have a system. Riggs goes up into the pipes to start removing the plug. Once the plug is out, DJ lugs it towards the Humvee. The work is going well, despite the dark and misty and cramped quarters. They quickly get a third plug out and are videotaping it for official records. The team is working on a fourth plug when DJ and Riggs get their breathing hoses tangled. So they're circling around each other, working to untangle this mess of hoses that's keeping them alive. And all of a sudden I got this light feeling, you know, that um, we call it the martini effect a lot of times. You know, anything that you feel underwater when you're working, or it feels like you just had a martini or you've had some kind of a mixed drink, it feels good. Trust yourself, it's bad. Haas is standing behind, keeping an eye on DJ and Riggs as they untangle the hoses. And then he sees both of them fall to the floor. Next week on Eclipsed, the worst case scenario becomes reality and the divers must find a way out. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. This week, it's hosted by me, Joe Hawthorne, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lynn Gerbig, Joe Hawthorne, and Tanita Rahmani. Special thanks to DJ Gillis, Donald Hosford, Lorraine Jones, and Doug McDonald for sharing their time and experience. Thanks to Rhea Convery and David Deust for showing us the modern Deer Island facility and explaining in great detail how everything works. And a big thank you to author Neil Swidey, his book, Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men in a Disaster, Ten Miles into the Darkness, was very helpful in reporting this series. If you'd like to learn more, I highly recommend checking out his book. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineers are Garrett Tiedemann and Ewan Lai Tremuen. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are Bijan Steven and Michael Partyboy Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, 
drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsedpod or send us a text or 917-810-3294. Thanks for listening. See you next time.